Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're launching uh, a new series this morning through the book of Philippians. Uh, a new series through the book of Philippians. Many scholars call this, uh, Philippians, uh, the epistle or the letter of joy. <clears throat> the author Paul uses the Greek words for joy and rejoicing like 16 times in just 104 verses. And so we're calling this series For Our Joy. For Our Joy. And the idea is that in Jesus we find a deeper and purer and more lasting joy and pleasure than anything else this world can offer us. This morning, we're going to talk about what it means to have joy in our identity. Joy in our identity and who we are because of Christ. Because who you are in Jesus is always first. Who you are in Jesus is always more important than what you do for him. I mean, so many of us come to church and we live our Christian lives kind of stressing out about what are we supposed to do for the Lord, right? But who we are in Jesus is so much more important than what we do for him. You got to start there. Well, you'll never know how to live if you don't know first who you are. I mean, from birth, every single one of us is trying to answer that question, who am I? Right? You remember back in high school, which is all about finding who the heck you are? And then you get to college and you realize you don't like who you are, and so you sort of reinvent yourself. And then you start your career, and that becomes your identity. Like who I am, how I value myself depends on how much I succeed or whether I fail or not. Right? And when you get married, and all of a sudden your identity uh, it, it gets confusing because your identity is wrapped up with a whole other person. And then those of us who have kids, like, man, that doesn't change your identity, does it? <laughs> like a tiny person determines when you sleep, when you eat, how much money you have, and if you'll have any more hobbies. I'm not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're an empty nester, if you're an empty nester this morning, I mean, then your identity gets, gets shaken up again. Like, who are we even, right? What do we do with our time now? And the fact is, no matter where you're at in life, you'll always find yourself plagued with the question, who am I? Your identity constantly in crisis. And this morning, I want us to see that in Jesus, we can have true joy in the new identity that he gives us. So we've got two points for us this morning. Don't get too excited. They're long points. But two points. First, we're going to look at a crazy backstory. And then secondly, we're going to look at the core identity. So first, the crazy backstory to the book of Philippians. And secondly, our core identity in the first two verses. So number one, the crazy backstory. Technical theological terms right there. Crazy backstory. Let's start by reading the first few verses of Philippians. I want you to notice the love that Paul clearly has for this church in Philippi. Read with me in verses 1 through 6. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The author Paul here, he says he gives thanks for them because of their partnership from the first day until now. You see, what I want you to see is that there was a first day. There was a first day, a day that this all started. Paul was there when this church first started, when this church was first planted. And here he reminds these 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 church people in Philippi, he reminds them of that day. And he says, I'm sure that God who did a good good work in you back then will be faithful to complete it. Amen. King's Cross is your home church. I want you guys to know that I pray that prayer for you guys every Tuesday morning. I grow through I go through the the the, the congregation roster of our church on Planning Center, and I, and I and I I take chunks of names every every Tuesday morning, and I pray that prayer that God who began a good work in us here at King's Cross will be faithful to complete it. Now the Book of Philippians it's it's a letter, right? Paul was, he's clearly writing a letter to this church. And just like any other old letter, if you want to understand the meaning of that letter, the context of that letter, then you got to ask questions like, well, who wrote this? Who received it? What was their relationship like? Was it good or was it bad? What was the purpose of the letter? Why did he write it? And so I want us to, to kind of go through those over the next few minutes and first talk about who wrote it. Who wrote it? Now, Paul, Paul was a, a pastor and an apostle. He was a veteran missionary and church planter who wrote half of the New Testament. Arguably the single most important figure outside of Jesus in the first century church. But before he was all that, before he was this beastly church planter, we first meet Paul in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he was a rabbi that we're introduced to early on in Acts and a Pharisee, a religious bigot and a hater of all things Christian and all things related to Jesus. He, he, would, he would hunt down and, and slaughter Christians on behalf of Rome. But then on the Damascus road in Acts 9, we see that Paul has this radical conversion experience. And he goes from murderer of Jesus followers to laying down his life in the service of Jesus in his church. He went from like awful dude to awesome dude. Planted so many churches throughout the Near East in the first century. And so I want us to look now at his backstory with this particular church, the Philippian church. So if you have a Bible open, go ahead and turn left to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we see here that Paul is on a road trip to really end all road trips. He's heading over all over the Roman Empire with his friends Silas and Timothy. They pick up Luke along the way, who's the one writing the book of Acts. And Paul is on a mission. He's on a mission to preach the gospel and to plant churches all over the region. And at one point, at one point, they settle in the city of Philippi. This Roman colony, it was like a, a microcosm of, of Rome in Philippi. I want you to see what happens here in, in Acts 16, verse 13. It says, on the Sabbath day, we, remember this is Luke writing, he's talking about him and Paul and Timothy, Silas and their whole crew. Yeah. 
He says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, basically a synagogue happening out in the park. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, here's what you need to know. You need to know Paul's strategy in planting churches was he would go to a, a new community. He would go to a, a city. And when he got there, he would look for like the synagogue in the town. He would go to the synagogue and he'd preach the gospel there because he figured, you know, like in the synagogue, they kind of already have like some knowledge of who God is. And so he'd go there and tell them that Jesus is the Messiah that the scriptures have promised about. He'd preach the gospel there. But then when he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. There's no Jews. There's no Christians. No synagogue. Just a little prayer meeting in the park with a bunch of women. And instead, that's what they just come upon, this little prayer meeting. Now read it, read on in verse 14 with me. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, this woman here is, is described as a seller in purple goods. Another, if your translation might say purple cloths, Right? So she's sort of a fashionista, right? She's a fashionista and a successful one at that. Purple dye was hard to come by back then. It was extracted from like mollusk shells. Pretty rare. And so they were really expensive. And so she had high-class clients. She's a business tycoon. Hashtag boss lady of the first century, right? And she has a house in Thyatira, which was this huge port city in the ancient world. And she had another house here in Philippi. That's like saying that she has a home in London and in Hong Kong. Like they're both big world economic centers. And she's also described as a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. Now that, there is a euphemism used to describe someone who's basically like intrigued by or drawn to Israel's God. She's not a full-on Jew. She's not a Christian. She's just kind of interested, right? Now, maybe that's you this morning. Like, you're interested in the God of the Bible, but you haven't fully, like, bought in yet, right? And that's you. We just want to say, like, we love that you're here. We love that you give us the honor of spending time with us uh, on, on this Sunday morning, on this Mother's Day. I mean, you could be, like, anywhere else enjoying brunch at some fancy restaurant somewhere, and you chose to come to church this morning. So we're glad that you're here. Uh, when we planted this church about a year ago, we, did, we said that we wanted uh, this to be a safe place uh, to, uh, uh, for people, regardless of where they're at on the faith spectrum, uh, to explore uh, what it means to know Jesus and to follow him. But that was Lydia. She was interested. She was intrigued, but she hasn't fully bought in yet. And I want you to see, read verse 14 again. It says, the Lord, what, opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I love that. I love that. It's our job to share the gospel like Paul is, but it's God's job to open hearts. We can't do that. Only God can do that. And that's what happened to Lydia. Paul opens the Bible. He begins to teach, and it says Lydia's heart is pride open by the Lord. She's kind of interested in Jesus, but she's not a follower of Jesus yet. Yet it's in that place that Jesus steps in to open her heart and save her. Some of you were like that. I know many of your stories. Some of you were like that, right? You were kind of like 
Christmas and Easter sort of church people. Called ourselves followers of Jesus, but when you looked at our lives, he wasn't really our Lord in any real sense of that word. But then he saved us. He, he, he rescued us. And then we went from saying only the convenient parts of my life are for him to saying all of my life is for him. He changed us. Lydia, this woman, will go on to start the Philippian church and fund Paul's missionary journeys. And what I want you to see here is that women like Lydia were not at the margins in the first decades of Christianity. Unfortunately, we don't read a lot about them, but they were integral members of the first century church. They cared for local congregations. They were key strategic players at the forefront of Jesus' great commission. They were honored and respected, and they ministered in, in, in ways that made a profound difference to Paul and to the church in Philippi that echoed and reverberated throughout history even to today. We would not have church planting in, in, in the Near East. The church would not have spread in the first century if it wasn't for faithful women like Lydia. Now let's read on and read about another woman in verse 16. It says, as we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So this woman's got a crazy backstory, right? Like she's connected to the demonic world. And because of that, she's able to do fortune telling and sort of made a business out of it. And then verse 17, it says, she followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the most high God who claim to you the way of salvation, which really quick, I know I'm going to lose like half of you with this analogy. But that just reminds me of like how rap artists have like their hype guys following them around going like, yeah, what? Yeah, that, right? And I just kind of picture this demon girl, this, this slave girl kind of following them around like that. She's like, yeah, these men are the servants of the most high God. Verse 18. <laughs> and this she kept doing for many days. She kept doing this for days. And Paul, understandably, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I love the contrast here between this girl's story and Lydia's story, right there next to each other. This girl was a girl who'd given herself up to a type of depravity that consumed her life. Lydia was a woman who was intrigued and interested. Jesus steps into both of those spaces to save them. Regardless of your backstory, regardless of whether you're seeking or you're com com completely far away, spirit in spiritual turmoil, Jesus steps into both of those spaces. You'd think the locals here would rejoice at the girl's deliverance, right? And if you guys remember when we were in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus cast out a demon, people marveled and rejoiced. But look what happens to Paul. Verse 19, it says, When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Wasn't well received, was it? The next few verses say that they were then jumped by, by a larger crowd, stripped naked and beaten with rods. And this is like an honor and shame society. And so to sort of strip down someone naked and, and, to, and to beat them up to a pulp is, is, is like the worst thing that you could do to them. Treat them as, 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 as less than, than human, undignified. 
Read verse 23 with me. It says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them, Paul and Silas, into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the, in the stocks, which is what they did to torture people. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> because that's what you do, right? I mean, in the middle of this situation, they're just praying and singing hymns to God. And we'll learn this about Paul in Philippians, but he knows how to find joy in the most difficult and hardest circumstances because of who he is in Christ. It's just in his bones. It's so a part of who he is. That's why 10 years later, he can write to this church in, in Philippi while he's in prison, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Uh, continue reading on with me, uh, the rest of verse 25 down, down, down to the end of the passage. So Paul and Silas, they're praying and singing hymns. And it says the prisoners were listening to them. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice. He said, whoa, wait, no, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced. There's our theme word, rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. Now this man, this jailer, wasn't seeking Jesus like Lydia was. He wasn't in spiritual turmoil he was just kind of indifferent. He just happened to be there and doing his job. And then he's confronted with the countercultural reality of who Jesus is by the way that Paul and Silas were in the middle of this situation. And you see that even there, Jesus steps into that space, surprises that dude with deep joy in Christ. Verse 40, read it with me. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. Remember her? And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And that is how the church in Philippi got started. Paul's launch team for this church was a boss lady business tycoon, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal jailer. How's that for a lineup? But what does Paul say? What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 1? God did a good work in you. God did a good work in you, and he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's a beautiful thing to watch God save all kinds of people and all kinds of places and all kinds of spaces, regardless of where they're at on the faith spectrum. Jesus is there with open arms. He, he meets you there, and he saves them. 
If you're a Christian this morning, this is your story too. We were all like sheep who've gone astray. And Jesus is the good shepherd who seeks after us, who pursues us and, and brings us in. And it leads us now into our text. In Philippians 1, I want us to talk about our core identity. Our core identity. Fast forward now 10 years. 10 years after Acts 16, Paul is now in prison again. And he sends his friend Epaphroditus back to this church in Philippi with a thank you letter that we know and read as Philippians. And he writes this letter to encourage them to encourage his old friends, this church that he started, to give thanks to them and to stir in them deep Christian joy in the middle of hard circumstances. If anyone's qualified to do that, it's Paul, the guy who planted this church. Paul, the guy who, who led these people to Christ. Paul, the guy who's now sitting in prison in chains for being a preacher of the gospel. I want us to see now what this text says about our core identity. First, he says, one, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. You see, the first thing we need to know about our core identity is that Paul and Timothy, they identify themselves as servants of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, honestly, and this might, might hit some of us uh, like kind of strange, but that word servant honestly means slave or bondservant. It's this Greek word douloi, which, which means slave. Now, hardly any modern English translation will use the word slave for obvious reasons, cultural sensitivities and all. But what you need to know is that slavery in the Roman Empire was different than the way that we understand it today, right? You didn't enslave people because of where they lived or because of their race or because of their class. It wasn't a class thing. In the Roman Empire, a third of the people, citizens, were slaves, and they were not treated as subhuman. Usually you owed a debt, and once you worked off that debt, you were let free, and you often earned a wage while you worked uh, as a slave in the Roman Empire. And to my surprise, when I was studying this, slaves could actually own other slaves. Many slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, civil servants. There were civilians, there were citizens. And to be clear... The Bible does not endorse slavery as we understand it today, all right? Like a lot of my unbelieving friends, they'll come to me with like, well, well look, look at your Bible. Your Bible talks about slave, slavery, right? Like your Bible endorses slavery. That's why I don't want to be a Christian. But in fact, the Bible does not endorse slavery as we understand it. In fact, 1 Timothy 1, Paul says that slave trading is a sin. It was actually the Christian teaching on human dignity that led to the abolishment of slavery altogether. God doesn't want people to treat other people, other image bearers, as property, right? Just be clear about that. But when Paul uses that word, there's still some sense in which you, you owed yourself to someone else. There was still some sense in which you belonged to someone else while you served as a douloi. And what's fascinating is that Paul is sitting there writing this letter. And he goes, yes, that's the metaphor I'm looking for. And he calls him and Timothy, he calls themselves douloi, doulos, slaves of Jesus Christ. In saying this, he's saying that part of our identity as Christians is that we belong to Jesus. We belong to him. 
We belong to Jesus in the truest sense of that word. He's your master. He's the one you listen to, the one you follow, the one you obey. Now, my guess is that when I say, as a Christian, you can be a bondservant or a slave to Jesus, most of us are not ready to sign up for that, right? But I want you to consider that really all of us, every single one of us, in some form or fashion is a slave to something. Titus 3 puts it this way. Titus 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. The idea here is that if, if, if you can't not sin, then you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. The idea here is that you can't stop. If you can't stop lying, then you're enslaved to others because you care about your reputation, what they think about you. If you can't stop drinking, you're a slave to alcohol. If you can't stop smoking, popping, injecting, you're a slave to drugs. If you can't stop getting angry, you're a slave to bitterness. If you can't stop being lazy, you're a slave to comfort. We're all enslaved in some form or fashion. Slavery is, is and, and these all things, it's, it's selfish. It's where it's all about me. It's not for God. It's not for others. You're saying, I get to be God and do what I want. You can even be a slave to religion. That's when you commit yourselves to a bunch of rules that are not in the Bible and to a culture that's not taught in the Bible and a posture that says, you know, I'm better than others and I'm a winner. It's a heart that says, God will love me because he has to, because I'm so great. Look at me. Look at, all the, look at all the bad things that I don't do. Look how much I love Jesus. Look at all the great things I do, all the mission trips I go on. Look how much I love Jesus. And the irony here, the irony here is that being a slave to Jesus is really the only way to be truly free. The only way to be truly free. It doesn't mean that you won't sin anymore doesn't mean that you won't struggle anymore, but it means that sin is not your master. If Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, then true life can only be found in him. The true, true freedom can only be found in following him. A life centered on sin or a life centered on self-righteous religion will both tell you not to serve others, but to be served. Not to give to others, but to take for yourself. Not to be humble, but to be proud. Jesus frees us to live our lives with abandon, undignified, to live for the glory of God and the good of others by liberating us from the shackles of both sin and self-righteous religion and inviting us to know him and to follow him, the author and the giver of life. And if you believe that, Paul says, then you're also called a saint. That's the other part of our identity. You're also called a saint. He continues in verse 1. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. I think it's safe to assume that most of us would be more receiving of that title than of a servant or a slave, right? Saint? You're like, I'm going to put that on my business card. I'm going to update my LinkedIn when I get home, right? I mentioned this last week, but those of us who grew up in like the Roman Catholic Church, we have a skewed view of that word saint. We think saints are sort of like these super Christians that get to answer the prayers of people in the afterlife. But here's what it takes to be a saint in because here's what it takes to be a saint in the Roman church. First, you have to live a saintly life. 
right? That's hard. Second, you have to die, right? That's hard too. Uh, and your local bishop, if he was a fan of you, he can start the process like five years after your death. He would look at your life's work, your writings, all your relationships. They do an audit, right? They go around with a clipboard, do an audit on your life. And if they see any blemishes, then you're out. And then, if you're good, they push your case to Rome where the congregation of saints looks over their work. And then at that point, it gets tough because even though you're dead, you have to perform two miracles. And after the first, you're called blessed. And after the second or third, you can be officially declared a canonized saint. Now, none of that is in the scriptures. None of that is in the Bible. You know what the Bible says are the requirements to become a saint? There's only one. Jesus. (laughs) Done, right? Don't you love that? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if he is your Lord and master, then you are a saint by definition. You are a saint in the fullest sense of that word. All saint means is that Jesus lived for you, died for you, rose from the grave for you. It means he took your old life away and he's given you a new life. He's made you holy in his sight as a free gift of his grace. And you are now set apart for kingdom service to live your life for God's glory and for the good of others. You might be thinking, I'm no saint. You have no idea who I am. The thoughts that I have, the things that I've done, that's what makes the gospel of God's grace so beautiful. Jesus looks at us, a sinner, and because of his work, not ours, because of his work, his life, his death, his burial and resurrection, because of his work, when we're found in him, we can be declared saints. See, that is our identity. That is our core identity. We're servants of Jesus, and we're saints in Jesus. And look, your identity in Christ is the most important thing about you. Don't miss that this morning. That's like the one big idea, is that your identity in Christ is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is not your vocation. It's not your title. It's not how many friends you have, how many stuff you own, how much you have in your bank account or your retirement account. It has nothing to do with where you live. It has nothing to do with your family. I know it's Mother's Day, but it doesn't even have anything to do with, with you're the greatest mother in the world, the greatest father or grandmother or grandfather in the world. Those are not the important, most important things about you. The most important thing about you is who you are in Jesus. It's what Jesus did for you. Living, dying, rising for you to declare you a saint. It's who he's called you to be now as a servant of God and others. In closing, I want us to read the greeting as a whole and see how it's just saturated, which is the good news of God's grace. Read it again with me. Verse 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ 
You see, everything we've unpacked in these verses is sounding the theme of God's grace. Everything related to Paul and his relationship with the church in Philippi, the most important thing about them is that they are recipients of God's grace. The themes of joy and unity, church planting, conversions, all of it. You want to know what the core identity of a Christian is? Saved by grace. Receiver of grace. It is only by God's grace that we become Christians, that we become servants of Jesus, and that we get to be saints in Jesus. Paul greets them with grace because all we know is grace. And here's what you need to know this morning, is that if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you want to follow Paul's example in the way that he greets this church in Philippi, right? He's greeting them with grace. He sees himself as an ambassador of God's grace and peace. Did you know that Paul starts every single one of his letters in all the New Testament with this greeting of grace and peace? You see, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you have a responsibility that's just like Paul's. You have a responsibility to pass on God's grace and peace. And what if you started every interaction with grace and peace? Every letter, every text message, every email, every argument, every interaction that you had, every hard moment in life, with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with money, with other people, where you just stop and say, either out loud or in your mind, grace and peace. And the grace of God and the peace of God begin everything that, 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 that I do. Let that be a part of my core identity. What if you were known by everyone around you as a grace and peace person? And that stings, right? I wrote that last night, added that to, 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 to my transcript here, and, and, and that challenged me hard, right? I don't know that I'm known as a grace and peace person. But man, by the grace of God, let's be those kind of people. Grace isn't something that we graduate from. It's something that we dive deeper into, something we build upon. It's our foundation. So over the next several weeks, we're going to dig deeper into the joys and the pleasures of his grace as we kind of unpack the, the book of Philippians. But this morning, I want you to know that if, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the most important thing about you is that you are a receiver of God's grace, declared a saint, free to serve him to the glory of God and the good of others. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.